Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Cattle Baron Cigars. Cattle Baron Cigars has a rich, natural, aromatic, classic tobacco flavor. Made with the finest tobacco, perfectly blended for the most pleasant, satisfying, long ash you can buy anywhere. Cattle Baron Cigars has consistently scored an excellent in the 90s on their reviews. For more in-depth information on Cattle Baron Cigars, listen to our Brian Mussard podcast episode and visit cattlebaroncigars.com. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. Welcome back to another episode of Brands and Barbed Wire. On today's episode, we get a chance to visit with one of the legends of the Angus breed. We learn about his successful judging career, early adoption of technology, and his overall contribution to the beef industry. It's my privilege to introduce today's guest, Bill Rischel of BR Angus. Bill, welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you, especially on Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Bill, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of guys and, and you uh, obviously are, like I said, I, I would consider a, a pioneer, performance pioneer and, and an Angus uh, legend. But, um, but we've got some folks around the world that might not, uh, might not know Bill Rischel or who, who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your family here before we get uh, too deep into your history. Well, it started at York, Pennsylvania, kind of back in your part of the world, Jim, and uh, grew up on a general livestock and crop farm, not a very big one. In those days, most of those farms were not very large, and uh, but very efficient. And uh, we raised a lot of the different crops, uh, had a cow herd that started out early on as a commercial set of cows. And over the years, started buying a few registered females here and there. And eventually, it became a herd of registered Angus females. We fed uh, roughly 100 to 150 head of steers a year. Uh, some people will find this kind of interesting, I think, that uh, in, in the, the market-ready steers that we fed out, a large percentage of those in the early days, when I was just a little kid, came right out of your state of Virginia, out of the northern tier of the Shenandoah Valley, a lot of it from uh, Newmarket and the other auction markets where those calves come in. And early on, you know, Virginia was one of the few places where a lot of these people graded these feeder cattle. They were a pioneer in that respect. And... A lot of those cattle were Hereford cattle in those days. We fed a lot of Hereford steers over the years, even though we were our, our herd of cattle was primarily black and Angus early on and stayed that way. Um, so I guess I could you could say I got indoctrinated into the Angus breed fairly early on. Um, two brothers. My mother was a city girl. My dad grew up on a Holstein dairy farm. 
And he swore he never wanted to milk another cow in his life, and he pretty well got his wish for that. I had two brothers, and the three of us got to milk the family cow. He didn't want anything to do with her. So uh, that's most of the background. I uh, got involved in 4-H heavily, mainly due to my mother. Um, she was a city girl that saw the good in that and believed in it and got us involved, and Dad was a little late to that party, but eventually he realized that he enjoyed it too and appreciated uh, everything that went with it. A lot of work ethic, you know, from working on a farm, but also 4-H and working on those projects. And we were all pretty competitive. And the net result was uh, put a lot of time and effort into it. And that usually paid off. Yeah. And you, uh, you, did you do some livestock judging uh, while you were in 4-H too? I sure did. We had uh, county 4-H livestock judging the way they did it in Pennsylvania. And each county would send a team to the state. You had to be at least 14 to go to the state 4-H convention and the events that went with it. And when I was 14 years old, tried out for the team. And my teammates were uh, a guy by the name of Don Bowman who ended up managing a herd of Charlotte cattle in Western Pennsylvania years later. Don's passed away now, but my other teammate was a guy that a lot of people on your podcast will know, a guy by the name of Barry Flinchball. Of course, he went to K-State and was a professor emeritus there for years in economics and probably advised more presidents on the farm bills than any other person in that field. And he passed away here just about two years ago now, and that's a big loss because he was a great mind in that area of, of work. I know I I moved to Virginia in 92 and went to work for the Virginia Cattlemen Association, which marketed a lot of those uh, feeder cattle. And we marketed a lot of feeder cattle into Pennsylvania. And a lot of people don't know, you know, wouldn't have known that, but there was a lot of farmer feeders and stuff like that in Pennsylvania. And the first time I ever heard uh, Bill Richel's name back then, I was mo mostly a commercial kid, and and uh, was a we had a we had a state livestock grader named Randall Updike, <laughs> and and Randall Randall asked me if I'd if I'd run into you at BIF or something like that, and said he had judged against you. And I don't know if that was in 4-H or in college or what it was, but but how. Uh, how how much of a competitor you were and how how good a breeder and stuff like that you were and that kind of that was my first first person to ever mention Bill Richel to me back in the 90s so i was i was just going to mention to you that uh in that 4H career we won the state contest i think it was like 59 maybe if i remember correctly and of course won the trip to chicago and we got to compete out there and uh we just ended up kind of in the middle of the pack but it, memory serves me right, Virginia won the national contest, and there was not just Randall, but a brother with him on that team. And those Updike boys impressed the daylights out of me at that age, I can tell you that. I thought I thought they were what everybody should be trying to copy and and be like, you know. Yeah, and of course, of course Randall had his own Angus herd and yeah. and graded, graded those feeder calves back here in Virginia at the time, too. So that, that was a nice... Uh, a nice connection to the story. And I just had to, had to seek out who Bill Richel was because, you know, Randall thought so much of you. So. Well, that's really good to hear because the feeling was mutual. They, those, those two 
Updike boys just impressed the daylights out of me at that age. I can tell you that. So then, uh, so after that, you went on to uh, to Penn State. Is that right? I did. Uh, we showed a lot of 4-H, and between my two brothers, Ed and Dick, and myself, we all took turns at having the Grand Champion stare at the Pennsylvania Farm Show, which is the big 4-H event in the state of Pennsylvania every January. And uh, we had our share of winning with that, and uh, those were great memories growing up. It's always fun to be on that end of the, you know, the the show, kind of winning, winning the big banner and getting to sell a steer. And uh, the price for those champions up there was enough that it helped put the three of us through school. In addition to all three worked in the university beef barn while we were going to school, a dollar an hour, by the way, anybody that thinks it was easy. Uh, <laughs> Granted, it didn't take that much money at that point in my life to buy things like it does today, but a dollar an hour was still just a dollar an hour, and it it wasn't a big salary at all, but that wasn't the idea. We were there trying to learn what we could learn, and I think it was just about everybody's goal that got to go to Penn State and Animal Science. In those days, the Penn State show cattle of all the breeds were, uh, they did about as much winning as anybody in the country both uh, at the Keystone and the Eastern National. And then, of course, those were the warm-ups to see which cattle were competing well enough to what would go on to Chicago at the International. And uh, I did uh, one way to, to Penn State. Uh, was very, very fortunate with one other classmate there that they had some guys graduate off term. By that, I mean December middle year type thing. They didn't want freshmen to work anywhere. Had to ask special permission. And uh, Jim Mails and myself both got to move into the beef barn after just one semester of college. And so uh, spent the rest of our years uh, getting up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, and doing chores and getting all those show calves in. And those were the days of nurse cows and that, which I'm, I'm thrilled that those days are gone, uh, that we don't uh, deal with that anymore in our industry anywhere that I know of. Uh, but that was uh, a lot of extra work and effort that we now know is not necessary to raise a good one. So that's that's a big deal. Yeah, so now, and and I don't, uh, forgive me for not having my timeline just right, but but, you know, Penn State in that era probably would have had a pretty pretty high caliber Angus herd. And when would power play and some of those bulls have, have been around? Would that have been before or after you? That was just after. That okay. was uh, Herman Purdy was in charge of purebred livestock when I was in school and on the team. And he was our coach. And, and Dr. Tom Merritt uh, was uh, assistant coach, traveled with us all the time. Uh, and oftentimes Herman might be off judging a show somewhere and Tom was totally in charge of the team. And Tom Merritt was extremely well known in the quarter horse industry. He judged a lot of quarter horse shows, was a superb quarter horse guy. I don't think many people as, as popular and as well known as Herman Purdy was in those days. I, I don't think that a lot of people realized 
how great Herman was at all species. He really was uh, one of the greatest evaluators of any species of livestock at that point in time in the country. And still to this day, has judged more shows worldwide than probably any other individual on many different continents. Right. Whether it was uh, in, in uh, Great Britain, uh, Australia, South America, I, I can't begin to even guess how many times he would have judged Palermo in Argentina, for example, the top show in Brazil. But he was he was in big demand and would be gone a lot. In fact, later on, after I graduated, uh, he asked me if I would stay on as assistant herdsman, which was often the case. Some student that had been on a judging team or worked in the beef barn after they graduated, maybe get put in a year or two as assistant herdsman there. And that's that's how Bill Gray, who was under Gail Long back in those early days, uh, he started as assistant herdsman when Gail went to the American Herdsman's Institute with Jack Phillips there in Missouri and started that project just outside of Kansas City. Um, that's that's uh, how Bill then took over as the herdsman at Penn State. And I was assistant herdsman under Bill Gray in those days. He went on to have a tremendous career with old Hereford cattle, of course. But that's quite a bit of the history of the of the Penn State deal. Our uh, our judging team went on to be the, the uh, grand champion team, collegiate team at the International Livestock Show in Chicago in 1966. So that was a thrill beyond anything you could imagine. And, you know, as competitive as I was all those years, uh, I ended up second in high individual in that contest by like two points. And I'm still not over it. <laughs> and you're still not over it. That's funny. <laughs> so who was the high? Who was uh, that? Do you yeah, remember? It was, a, it was a young guy from Kansas State. I can't quite put his name together anymore. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I had a... Turns out that most of the day going through the contest on most of the classes, I was projected to have a score that would have been equal to or higher than Nick Overpeck, who was the highest score ever in the history of the International Collegiate Livestock Judging Team. And I think Nick went to Purdue, if I remember correctly. And that double switch on a class of Hereford Bulls cost me enough to lose the contest and also, of course, hurt my score enough that the result wasn't what it could have been or maybe might have been. So Yeah, you missed the record by... By a couple of Hereford Bulls, and that that probably that's probably plagued you the rest of your life. As far as uh, never did like a Hereford after that, or did? <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm not. I wasn't that bad about it. But, uh, it 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 does still it does still kind of get me that I uh, and 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 then the the really thing that hurt was after it was over. Herman said you placed them right. He said they got them wrong. So. My coach was behind me 100%, and that probably made it hurt a little bit more. 
<laughs> I tease uh I tease Lee Leachman all the time. He he doesn't like a Hereford. And I, 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 teach him, I tease him. I said, you, you, what happened to you, man? Did a Hereford gal get you down when you were little or something? <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. But um, so so you're in, uh, you, you, I assume you, you graduated, you stayed on and, and got your master's. Did you, um, at what point in time did you meet your wife? Was it there or, or was it after that? Actually, it was high school. High school, okay. We went, we went to the same school together, but uh, knew each other and never dated till between uh, our junior and senior year in high school. Okay. Uh, so I, I guess actually it was more after we were into our senior year that we dated, mm-hmm. and then and then we uh, and I got a funny story I have to share. We we think it's hilarious. I hope other people would enjoy it. <laughs> We uh, we got married uh, June 25th of 66. So that was just before the fall of traveling, uh, you know, to the fall judging events. And I was still, of course, then in my final year of college right after we got married. And then uh, I think Herman knew that young couple needed a little more money. And uh, to make things work and to live on. And so he asked Barb if she would help him at the office with cattle records. And she was like my mom, a city girl, who really has taken this business and and gotten her arms around it and, and understands an awful lot about it. And was just really a great partner in our cattle operation over the years. So uh, that's that's a very valuable valuable thing and uh, to this day yet if I talk to some of these young students whether they're judging team or not uh, they want to know how do you get ahead in this business and how do you go out and do something like maybe we did and I said well first of all it's number one is passion you better have a passion for this business because the days are long the work is hard it's not easy nobody's going to hand it to you and if you don't have a passion for this, you better find your passion because this is not it. You don't really have a passion for it. It's true of anybody. And then the other thing is, you, said you better find yourself a really, really good partner that gets it and understands it and wants it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think as um, as I look around at, at people that have built things up from from nothing, right, or or started out from with nothing and build it up together. Um, that's been a that's sort of been an integral part of it. I think of you know like uh, Galen and Lori Fink. You know how absolutely you, you know they they worked at that thing together and I think had to, had a common goal. And I think you're right. I think that's a really really important criteria to to wanting to yep. be in this business and and working at it. So yeah, no doubt about it. So anyway. One day after we were done, and I was done at the at the beef barn, and chores were finished. I come home, and and she had been working with records in the office that day, and she said, "Bill, you're not going to believe what Herman told me today." And right then, my ears perked up, and I'm wondering what in the world was what, where's she going with this? And she was pregnant with our first child at that point in time. And Herman told her, he said, Barb, if you and Bill have a son and name him Herman, he said, I'll give you $100. And she looked at me with this really funny look, and she said, would you name a boy Herman? 
for a hundred dollars. And I said, I'd name a girl Herman for a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, money was short in those days and it was hard to come by. <laughs> Well, well, I'm assuming you didn't name your daughter Herman. I noticed that uh, they all start with a J. <laughs> yes, and uh, on that note, a, a friend years ago who worked for, uh, well, his, his name was Lyle Eaton. I don't know if you'd remember Lyle or not. He was out of Illinois and worked for a publication, worked a lot of sales. He was he was a good ring man in the days, and uh Lyle said, I never could keep your three girls straight in what order they were. It's Jill and Joy and Judy. But he said, I finally figured it out. He said, the second letter in their names is (laughs) (laughs) I-O-U. That sounds about right. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Oh, shoot. All right. (laughs) That's pretty good. Well, let's uh, let's go from. Uh, so, how did you get from graduate school, married with with a, a kid or a kid on the way to to Nebraska? How does a, how does a young man jump and move from Pennsylvania to Nebraska? Well, my my stock answer for that because I've been asked that many many <laughs> times. I said covered wagon. <laughs> <laughs> fun with that one over the years because yep. at first they look at me like huh and then all of a sudden they get it i'm, I'm just pulling their leg you know yeah yep. so uh yeah i actually before we got married uh talked about it and i said to barb one day uh, i said you know don't be surprised if i get the ambition to move west sometime in our life, in our career. Uh, don't be surprised if uh, I bring that up again. And uh, so after I graduated with my undergraduate degree, I was working at Penn State and it was, you could go to graduate school for less money. Horses did not cost as much if you were there by mm-hmm. the university. So I started taking a few classes and then decided well, I just as well, you know, work on a master's degree while I'm doing that. And I worked on a master's degree in animal breeding. Um, Dr. Lowell Wilson had been at Purdue University and just came to Penn State. And I think I was the very first grad that he worked with as, as an advisor. And I'm I'm grateful for that experience because... Lowell really was a very, very sharp guy, very knowledgeable, and I feel like really was more in tune with where the industry was going than a lot of people at university levels in those days. Uh, From the standpoint of the science of the cattle business, the performance, and uh, thinking through what's really important, what's really valuable. And the great paradigm shifts over my lifetime in this industry, those things that really take a hold and get our attention, it's always based on the economic merit and economic value that they bring to us as breeders and the industry as a whole and our product today. But uh, the economics behind what we do is always 
always the most important factor as to why some things stick and go forward and some things do not last. It's, it's all sooner or later, it's about the value that it brings to breeders and the industry one way or the other, whether it's just in the selling of seed stock and genetics uh, or whether it's the product or whatever it is. It's those things that change the way we do business. And that's the paradigm shift that I'm talking about. Uh, and that would be true from performance records. Uh, I gave a presentation uh, a number of years ago, and then COVID hit, and it ended up being on, on a Zoom presentation with a uh, slide deck, you know, presentation put together like a PowerPoint and uh, for BIF. And if, for the Young Producers Symposium that year at BIF, it was supposed to be in Florida. It ended up being on Zoom, and that was very disappointing to me. I I, I love working with young people in this business, but I really enjoy it, you know, face-to-face, firsthand. And uh, doing that, something like those presentations where you can't interact with those people or have a question-and-answer session with it, uh, to me, is just always kind of defeats some of the purpose. So uh, I did one on the great paradigm shifts of my lifetime in the business, and it was performance records artificial insemination, and then in the early 70s, a thing called box beef. And then you go a little further down the line, and of course in 1978 was when it was started, it was called certified Angus beef. And then about 1988 was the first time in in my breed of Angus cattle that we actually had expected progeny differences. And then, of course, genomically enhanced EPDs. That is now, that's that's a whole new, you know, can of worms right there because now there's so much more predictability to what these cattle will do. And, and these, these figures and these uh, statistics and the information that's involved in creating these databases and these SIR summaries, it's it's just a whole new realm of possibilities. And so when you're working with these young students anymore, whether they're, you know, whether they're engaged with judging teams or just the animal science curriculum they're dealing with, they are so blessed to have so much information right at their fingertips compared to what my generation had, or probably even your generation. But it's amazing what's available to them. And I encourage them from that perspective that they just need to take advantage of that. Uh, latch on to mentors or people that they really, you know, think they can learn something from and and to try to improve their situation because it's all about the want to and the passion. Again, you come back to that. But they've got more tools available than anybody has in history. Yeah. And I... I get the opportunity every uh, every year to go back, go up to Penn State and speak to their beef production class on on genomics in the industry and some of that stuff. And and I just tell them, I'm like, look, everything everything you do today has a DNA component, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the food you eat, uh, from plants to to 
you know, the, the vaccines and stuff you, you're taking these days all have a, have a DNA sort of component to it. And it's going to be part of your future. And, and this big, this big data thing that you were talking about, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the amount of data that you can accumulate to help, uh, help you make decisions and don't be afraid, don't be afraid of it, you know? So, yeah. So, so after the, I finished my master's degree and, uh, that was fascinating deal because Dr. Wilson had gotten a hold of some some data from uh, you probably heard of Dr. Ray Woodward, mm-hmm. who in those days had worked some at uh, the USDA Research Center, I think, out there in eastern Montana, Miles City, and also was very engaged with ABS in those days, American Breeders Service. But he had gathered a ton of information from herds in Canada, Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming, I think it was. And they'd used the same sires on different ranches. And Lowell said that he was able to get a hold of that information from Dr. Woodward and that I could use it for my master's thesis. And that's what we did. And the idea was that it was structured the way it needed to be structured to be valuable data and information in that the same sires were used on different herds in different climates, different states. So you didn't have the huge variation of climate differences that you could have from the Canadian border to the Gulf Coast. But there was that difference that was necessary to make the data valuable data when you compared how these cattle performed. And our purpose was to determine if there was any SAR ranch interaction in the performance and the data. So we had to eliminate the environmental differences, basically, get down to the true genetic additive variance in those cattle that were produced from those sires used on different herds of cattle in different environments. And it was amazing. At the end of the day, uh, we went to uh, Ohio State University to visit with, uh, I'm having trouble coming up with his name right now, but he he was a guy who was one of the early um, knowledgeable individuals about the use of least squares analysis in comparing data and information, which is what we were doing when we were trying to eliminate the uh, any any infects any impact of the environment, which is management, feed, climate, all of those things, get down to just what those genes were in those cattle. So what we were keenly looking at was the ranking of sires based on that kind of calculation. As it turned out, the ranking of the sires, even if some of those calves would have weaned at 380 pounds in those days or 420 or even 460 or 470, it didn't matter. The sires that produced those calves still ranked the same when you use that kind of a calculation on it. And uh, it was uh, Dr. Harvey was his name at Ohio State, who was highly regarded and, and anybody today that's working at a different university somewhere based on this, um, you know, performance records and performance measures. Everybody knows Dr. Harvey and says he was, he was the great one in that field at the time. 
And I got to meet him there in his office at Ohio State when we were, uh, you know, doing this work, trying to get the results on this information. So it was a lot of fun doing that because that that basic information and knowledge right there gave me confidence in how we set up uh, contemporary groups from that day forward and everything that we ever did. And that included later on with all the carcass work that we did. So after that, uh, I went and joined my older brother, Ed, at Serre Farms at Phelps, New York. And that's about midway between Rochester and Syracuse. And during that couple of years there, we bought a bull out of South Dakota called Anconian Dynamo. And of course, anybody that's been in this business in the last 20, 30 years heard a ton about Anconian Dynamo back in the early 70s. He was one of the first bulls ever to win Chicago and Denver, you know, in the same year or even by, you know, even a year apart. But uh, a great breeding bull that sired a lot of uh, very, very good females, very productive type cattle. I can't say he ever sired too many sons that were going to outperform him, but uh, that happens with a lot of bulls. It takes pretty unique bulls to sire these really useful, functional females and still produce a lot of sons that go on and make a name for him and for the, the breed and the industry. So. Uh, after about two years at Serre Farms with my brother, I get a phone call from a guy by the name of Harold Topple, who owns 76 supermarkets in Long Island in New York City and had bought a farm at Hillsdale, New York, not far from Sir William Farms, which almost everybody had heard of back in the day. And uh, called it Top Hill Farms and wanted to know if I'd come manage that deal for him. And so we did, and we moved to Hillsdale, New York, and we managed uh, from 1971 to about 1975. And in those days, uh, he was starting to have some issues with uh, labor unions, with his meat cutters behind the stores, the supermarkets. And we're talking, we're going to talk about these great paradigm shifts that I mentioned earlier. And what happened there was, uh, he called one day on the phone and he said he had an invite uh, from somebody out in the middle part of the United States and they wanted him to come out and see their operation. And uh, he called and he said, there's a couple more seats on that airplane. He said, maybe you and Barb would want to go along out there, which we did. He said, if you're going to be in this business, he said, this is something you might want to see. They're talking about this new operation that they're developing. And lo and behold, we landed at uh, uh, Dakota City, Nebraska. And of course, then it was called uh, uh, before Tyson, Iowa Beef Processors. It was Iowa Beef Packers and Iowa Beef Processors. And uh, we got to see the first ever cryovac operation happening in that packing plant in the world. And I can't begin to describe the impact that had on the way I looked at things uh, from there forward. Uh, when you talk about uh, all of a sudden, we're not shipping hanging sides. You're shipping these boxes full of primals in many cases, or even 
partial primals, or as later became more fabricated product in cryovac uh, boxes that fit perfectly in refrigerated trucks. How much more product could you actually move more efficiently than these cryovac boxes of beef than these hanging sides on a, in a refrigerated truck? It was overwhelming what what a magnitude impact that was going to have on our industry and did have. And many other things since that were similar to that have had a lot of impact. But I'm not sure as much as that one, because if you think about it, that was there was huge economic waves that resulted from that very one one development and uh, technology. And I've thought about it enough that it went way beyond the efficiency and the money involved, but it became a factor in in food safety, a, a big factor in meat safety, which uh, was nothing but good going to come out of that. And and that actually did. And if you think about it, even in uh, uh, in food safety, you know, if we ever have any issue in the beef business or with with product it's going to be more in the ground beef area anyway and has been over the years to where it's mixed and worked with uh where the product becomes more penetrated you know one way or another at times so uh, uh just the great benefits that came from this cryovac packaging and box beef as we refer to it all the time is is absolutely a lesson that we should never forget. Yeah, I was I was sitting here imagining when you were talking about those hanging sides on the on the truck, just you know, a truck going around a turn or whatever, and those things slamming around, and just the food safety side of it. I was like, it's got to be, uh, it had to be a lot better for that as well. So not just the efficiency of it, but you know, just just transporting those those sides. Well, there's a lot of people today do not realize that that's how it was done in the past. That's that's enough years ago now that all those sides got to the supermarket and were behind the case in a back room, and all the fabrication and dismantling of those sides took place in the back of the, behind the counter at the supermarket. And now they didn't have to do that anymore. They'd open that box get the product out of there and then do whatever trimming or other fabrication they wanted to do with some of those. We can take that a step further, but before that, I need to back up a little bit because I just thought of one thing. When we were feeding steers, uh, you probably know this, but where where did we market those harvest-ready cattle? It was the Lancaster Livestock Yards in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And when I was a kid growing up, we were shipping steers over there. It was uh, it was an incredible thing because that was the largest terminal market east of Chicago, Illinois, at that point in time. And that's hard to get my arms around, even growing up there and knowing that. That's that's just you don't think of the East Coast being that big, but the vast majority of those cattle got terribly fat in those days. That's the way they wanted them because most of those went into the kosher beef trade for the East Coast big cities, the Jewish trade of kosher beef. 
And almost every packing plant in those days had a rabbi in the packing plant that had to bless that carcass, that, that, you know, that animal. And that was part of the business. Well, the most interesting thing about it is, and I don't know how many people realize this, but the kosher beef, they only use the front quarters, right? Yep. They, uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, back to, to Randall, he put me on to truth packing back in the nineties, which, which does kill kosher and still does today. And, uh, and so we've been buying our, our beef from truth in Baltimore, um, since then, I guess for 30, it's been going on 30 years now. And, and, um, and same kind of deal is, is, you know, they want the front half and, and they'll, they'll discount those hinds to move them. And so we'll call up and order a hind and a, and a loin and, and, you know, they'll, they'll hang it and age it and, and, you know, cut, wrap and freeze it for you. And we just go up there and pick it up in a box. And, and it's, uh, it's, you can't, for us, we can't raise one for, you know, the kind of the quality and the, and the price we can get there at truth. And we go up and do that. So, so they still do, they still do a lot of that today. And, and, um, you know, just great. Like you said, they, they want them big and fat and, and high quality. And, and, uh, it's still that way. It's still that way today. So it's, uh, they've been doing it for a long time that way. So then, uh, after after a few years there with with uh, Harold at Top Hill Farms, with all the things that were going on in the supermarket business and some of the issues with labor unions, the labor unions fought that box beef thing at a very high level because it was taken away from their butchers in the back of those stores. And with those issues, Harold decided that, and he he was a self made man. I mean, he, he and a brother was involved, and they had built this supermarket business. They started out with two supermarkets in Puerto Rico, which was a great shift for that part of the world because they never had a thing called a supermarket. They were still little corner grocery stores. And they started there with a deal they called Pueblo Supermarkets and then went on the stock exchange with it, called it Pueblo International. And then when they came back to New York, they bought out a chain of super uh, supermarkets called Hills. And a lot of those stores were not in the best part of the city or, or areas that were just uh, had a bright future to them. And so uh, he had enough issues that he came to me one day and said he wanted to sell the, uh, the herd and the farm and take care of what was his passion, his, his first love, you know, was, was the supermarket business that he really had a major part in putting together and making happen. And that was really, really a hard day for me in a short period of time without a lot of money, got it put together, right. I had put together uh, a fantastic set of cows for him and uh, they were proving to, to do that. By the end of the time when this thing was splitting up, uh, we made a decision that I'm very grateful for today. It would have been real easy just to say, oh, the heck with it and uh, pack our bags and find another job and go somewhere else. In fact, uh, Jess Bonnecue at Rally Farms in New York, they're in eastern New York, 
called me when he heard that that place was selling, wanted to know if I'd come manage rally farms for him. And I told him at that point, I said, we talked it over and we wanted to move west and do what I had said many years ago to Barb, that, uh, that we'd consider that. Because while I was managing Top Hill, they had bought a herd of cattle, the Lund Bar herd at uh, uh, Weibo. Well, between Weibo and Baker, Montana, their address was Carlisle. And they're right on the North Dakota border. And they bought that herd and ran it there for a while. And uh, it was a very, very functional, good herd of cattle. There's no question that that was well done. Uh, it was way better than the ones that had been put together in, in New York for Mr. Topple. But uh, it was still one of those things where it was costing too much to maintain them there at the Lund Ranch. It was on a maintenance deal. And I moved those cows to around Brewster, Nebraska, close to Dunning, actually. Dunning was more the address of where those cows ended up, and that's just west of Brewster, Nebraska. And so uh, I'd go out there a couple times a year and look after those cattle and just check in on them and how things were going there, and that was that was working pretty well at the time. And we started having a bull sale in Nebraska even in those days. And I was putting all of those bulls from the Nebraska unit and the bulls from the New York unit, with the exception of a few that we kept back to take on the road and show. I was uh, taking those, those bulls and putting them on test at Fort Kearney Beef Producers in Menden, Nebraska and gathering data on yearling bulls, and the vast majority of the bulls selling in Nebraska in those days, this is the early, early to mid-70s, were uh, two-year-olds. And so that was a challenge, but there was so much less in those yearlings. And we, we started selling 100 head of those yearling bulls in, in uh, Kearney, Nebraska in those days. And, you know, we were first sale, I... I still can remember we were averaging about 950 and then then we'd cracked the thousand and then we got a little more as we built into the deal. In those days, what you had in those yearling bulls was nothing like we get in them today, money-wise, you know, to develop them. Uh, so it was a very, very good thing. And uh, it was a great experience. In addition to that, the people that we were around and, and got to know, and that sale, that auction market where we held that sale there in eastern uh, part of the city of Kearney is totally gone today. There's been lots of changes, so that auction market doesn't exist anymore. It was a good experience, and that's when we sold uh, the deal out at Top Hill, and I didn't finish that story. We decided that we were going to stay and help Mr. Topple disperse that Calgary. After we stopped to think about it a little bit, he was great to us. He was an owner that everybody should hope to have, that the way he treated us. And we just, Barb and I both felt agreed on this, that we needed to stay and help him divest of this cow herd. He could get anybody to help him with the farm and the land. But the cow herd, it was important. We split that cow herd basically in half. Uh, I did and tried to make it as even as I could in my estimation of what what would work. 
And half of that herd went to an outfit in Illinois, and they're not in business anymore. The other half went to a place called Hedgerow's Farm. Miss Rachel Breck was her name that owned it. A wonderful lady, uh, had a, a great place there, loved Angus cattle, had a, uh, had a man working for manager her, John Kinter was his name. And uh, really a good guy that had her best interest at heart and did a great job with the cattle. And it was interesting to ask if the heifer calves that were on the ground, if uh, we would be willing to change the name on those calves. And I said, there's no reason why we shouldn't if we're not going on with them. So they were able to put their prefix on all those heifer calves. And as it turned out, uh, a couple of years before that, we had produced a female called Top Hill Annie. I think it was, her number was something like 4101 or something like that. I think that's close. Who went on to be a national champion female in the Angus breed. And then another heifer that carried the Hedros name, Hedros Gestress. I believe her number is 5102 maybe. And she went on to be a national champion female. So in about four years of actually breeding cattle after that group I put together for Mr. Topple, we had bred two national champion females. That in itself was really quite a feat. Uh, that, and I don't, I don't mind saying we take a lot of pride in that. And I think anybody would, you know, that Yeah, I'm not thought of as a guy that's a show cattle guy, but uh, we, we got, we got that accomplished and that was good enough for me. I, yeah. so. Well, there's a lot of people that work all their lives and never have a national champion. So to have two in that short of time is, is, yeah. is it is a pretty good accomplishment. And, and it's interesting that you talk to some, you know, people, people in that transition area era that went from, from show to performance. Right. And, uh, and, and what that transition looked like. And, and obviously you're building sort of up to that, uh, you know, where, did, where did, where did sort of that, I know you started to feed bulls and, and test them and, and some of, some of those things, it's, it's the meat industry that sort of drove that and the performance side of it and some of the stuff you did in college. But, uh, when did you kind of make the full, full shift to, to being recognized as a, as a pioneer of performance? Well, I, it, it, of course, was after the move to Nebraska. And, and by the way, it was not a covered wagon. It was an old rusted out Ford <laughs> <laughs> with, with three girls and uh, three daughters, the IOUs. And so uh, we, we got to, we landed in North Platte, Nebraska. I was familiar with that. And I did think about, Another thing in that process, because I'd always talked about Montana, South Dakota, or Nebraska. But at the end of the day, the, the influencing factor was the underground water, the Ogallala Aquifer in Nebraska, and the availability of water. And you could watch windmills anywhere you wanted to go in the sand hills, and you could watch it pumping tanks full of water for livestock. And, you know, you get to South Dakota and places like that, there's some places it's very hard to even put a well down. And a lot of them are just old runoff dams, they call them, uh, and they gather water until, you know, you have so many droughts and not enough rain, and all of a sudden you're selling cows because you can't 
you don't have enough water to maintain livestock. So yeah. that water actually influenced me greatly in uh, having that as a backup that you can just put a well down a lot of places, maybe 120 or 150 feet. You can pump all the water you need for livestock. That was a pretty big deal. And, and the bull market was always most of my life and still appears to be that way today. It's quite good in Nebraska. And you'll see lots and lots of people, even from other states, try to bring bulls into Nebraska and have a sale at an auction market somewhere in the state, uh, particularly in the western two-thirds of it. But uh, that's that's another issue that influenced us greatly was just uh, uh, the number of cows. You know, the thing that's probably surprised a lot of listeners, I think, is that three of the largest counties for cows in the United States of America are in Nebraska. Yeah, starting with Cherry County. And uh, the other one is uh, county there around Broken Bow, and another one is up in the north central part of the state that just have, it's amazing. The state of Nebraska has always had, I don't know what it is today after there's been some cows sold because of dry weather and not enough rain, but uh, historically, the state of Nebraska was a state of about one and a half million people and about three million cows. <laughs> right. And, and I, I just have to say, I always liked those odds. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It, but you still need people to eat the cows, so... You, yeah, you need some yeah. people around, but yeah, no, that's, that's good. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's we sometimes can ship, we can ship that product to them now, you know, pretty efficiently. So. Right. Right. Yep. So that, that part doesn't matter that much anymore. Yep. So your, your question was, and, uh, trying to get back on track here a little bit with, uh, getting to Nebraska and developing this thing and started out and worked in some sale management for a while. Uh, worked with an outfit called National Livestock Brokers, managed sales all over the United States, and uh, worked there for two years, just trying to uh, survive and and make a living while we were continuing to develop a, a nice little unit of cows on our own, and eventually left National Livestock Brokers and started Risha Livestock Services and did our own sale management and managed sales across the United States and a few in Canada. Uh, did that for, well, the year we moved out there was 1975. And we started our own business about 1977. And along the way, I was getting involved in a, in a sire or two here or there. In 1978, bought into with four other partners bought a bull called Ken Carl, Mr. Angus. And uh, he was a pretty exceptional bull for his era. He's like most of them that I've ever been around. There's always something that I could change to make him a little bit better, but he did a lot of things right. Number one started with a, a mother cow that was outstanding. And early on, somewhere in my lifetime, I realized that if you're going to have a really really good herd bull that sires a lot of functional, useful cattle, that he'd better have a great mother. 
and grandmother if possible. But uh, that is that is an absolute must for me. Uh, a, a bull has got any chance at all of being a breeding bull in his lifetime. Uh, if he if he doesn't have a great mother, he's he's not going to make it very far. It just it's almost impossible. So uh, we did that, and then in 1981, I bought. I was I was managing. Uh, this was on our own. I got asked to select and man select cattle for and manage the Northern International Livestock uh, Sale at the Nile in Billings, Montana. And uh, I was uh, on the Arnson Ranch at Christina, Montana, with the Arnson boys in those days. Now their kids are running that ranch, but uh, Keith and Doug Arnson were fabulous young guys with a really good herd of cows. And uh, one year I was in there to select cattle for that Nile sale, and I found a bull calf that just kind of really took me, I mean, hit me pretty hard. Of course, here's what we had to work with with records in those days. People might find this interesting, but had no sheets, no computers, no anything. And all the cattle I selected for that were based on eyeball structure and that judging team experience, you know, and everything that comes back to kind of put the pieces together for you. Uh, and I'm a firm believer that the, the form and the function of these cattle goes hand in hand. It's just no other way for it to work. And I joke about it a little bit. I said, there's a reason why the middle syllable is spelled F-O-R-M of performance. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I believe in that a great deal. And so that makes life a lot easier when you can put all those pieces together and still try to do it to this day yet, even with EPDs and numbers and all the information that's available. I, I absolutely believe they have to go hand in glove. And it's the way it is for me. So the, this this bull calf, I'm, I'm sitting, I go back to the house and they get out their records and it's like a little box. It's like a recipe box for a cook in the kitchen. And all it has is these little three by five cards, you know, and has a cow's number and, and their calves each year, what she had, bull calf, heifer calf, and birth weight, weaning weight ratio. That's it. And that and, and Montana was right behind Virginia. Virginia was the first ever BCIA program in the whole United States, Beef Cattle Improvement Association, and a leader in that. And many leaders at VPI at their university deserve all the credit in the world for being leaders in performance in the country. And Montana was not very far behind. And they had a BCIA program, and that was long before most of these herds had gotten on the American Angus deal at all on AHIR. But they believed in records up there. They knew they worked, and they still did it. It was crude and not very sophisticated whatsoever, but by the same token, it was absolutely the right thing to be doing, and they were good at it in those days. And so I asked the boys, I said, uh, I'd like to start selling a bull in this sale at Billings. 
and we've never done it before. I said, how about bringing that bull? They, they brought heifers for quite a few years. I said, how about bringing that bull to the Nile this year, and we'll just sell him in the Nile sale. Well, they said, we don't really know anything about getting a bull ready down there. And I said, well, the guys that have been helping you with your efforts can do that. It won't, won't be that much different. Uh, but he, he, this bull was big volume, uh, really stout made, and really big nutted bull uh, for his age. He was still nursing his mother at that point. This was in August. Still nursing his mother. And uh, go back to the house and we pull out the papers. And I'll be doggone if his mother and his grandmother hadn't been the mothers of cattle that I'd selected for the Nile out of there, the females, the previous four years. And, you know, the pieces started to fit together. You could kind of see. And I, I considered the maternal value of this bull really outstanding. And the potential was incredible because of pedigree, history, and, and just the things that I'd witnessed in that herd of cattle. Uh, and so I said, it'd be good to put a new name on this bull, take him to the Nile. And they said, well, we don't, we don't know anything about that. You name him. So I said, well, I've been thinking about that. And I said, I think this bull can be a new trend in the Angus business because the maternal value, the Angus breed was losing maternal value in those days, in the late 70s and early 80s. They chased these taller cattle without as much internal dimension and not as much constitution. And they started taking the milk out of some of these Angus cattle. And I saw it firsthand in herds that I was in. That's what really enamored me with this bull calf, his pedigree. And he was out of a, a daughter of a bull called Candelier Forever 376, who was bred by Ellsworth Candy in the eastern part of Montana around Sydney. And so, uh, uh, that was intriguing to me to no end that the maternal value that I was pretty convinced was in this bull calf. Um, there was a whole lot more went into that, which I won't, I won't go into all those details today because the other side of his pedigree might've had some issues that he had to be careful of. But at the same time, that, particular sire back in there that sired some females that didn't have the best udders and teats were a little large on some of them. Uh, at the end of the day, the, uh, the Arnson boys had used the sire, which was a Van Dyke bred bull, great herd of cows. I loved, I worked for those people too at one time. Uh, and that was Clarence Van Dyke and his side of the, the family. Clarence had a twin brother. Uh, Ray Van Dyke, who was Highline Angus in Montana, and the Van Dyke Angus Ranch was Clarence, and he'd bred this bull. He was a uh, a VDAR Shoshone 548 was that bull's name, and uh, he had a ton. The Arnson boys had a ton of his daughters in production, and there wasn't a bad uttered cow in the bunch of them. And so I had all that perspective behind that yet on that side of the pedigree and then the 376 on the other side those cattle didn't have a lot of growth in them but he was one of the high milk bulls at that era of time and uh, beautiful uttered females absolutely stunning udders uh, i thought eh, you know there might be a little gamble at this point yet but not very much and so uh 
They said, what do you think this calf's going to bring down there? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. But I said, what would make you guys happy? And in those days, this is 1981, one, one of them said to me, well, if he'd bring $2,500, we'd be tickled to death. And I said, I would write you a check for that today and put him on a truck and take him North Platte. But I said, that's not my job here. I said, my job is to get as much out of these cattle for you as I can. He ended up costing me $10,000 in the sale. <laughs> and we did not have that kind of money in those days, but that was AAR Nutrim. Of course, that bull has made history in the breed. And here's what you, you asked me when this change took place in our thinking about the performance issue and all. It ended up being more than just performance because uh, I believed in this bull so much that. We put a lot of stock in it. We used him heavy when I when he got old enough to breed cattle. We used him heavy in the program. A great semen producing bull, which has always been extremely important to me. And uh, we end up, um, I'll get this all in the right order. We ended up hosting a Nebraska Angus tour. But I got, I got to back up a little bit more. We had some very well-known Angus breeders in our area right around North Platte. And all of a sudden, one day, I hear from somebody that said, well, your neighbors are not all that proud of your, your, your new, new trend bull. Uh, they're calling him New Toad, nicknamed yeah. New Toad. Well, the word toad was for a little one, you know, that wasn't, wasn't big enough. In the 80s, anybody who lived through the 80s knows where big went. I mean, it, it went to gigantic actually and I've, I've always liked bigger cattle well the new trend bull you know as a mature bull he ended up about uh, 48 49 inches at that hip that's still a pretty decent sized bull he was long bodied he's full of meat and he'd weigh 2200 just about any day you'd want to weigh him out breeding cows but he wasn't going to be that 58 inch tall deal that uh, you know, be hard to maintain. It would sire females that wouldn't fit a lot of climates, a lot of environments, and a lot of different uh, uh, areas of the country very well. So uh, we have an Angus tour, a state Angus tour in the area, and we were on that tour. And just being kind of a hard-headed old Pennsylvania Dutch German, um, I put a bunch of daughters, the earliest. They've been the oldest daughters we had at that time of Nutrend out in that lot where people drove into the place and right there by the, the driveway where we could walk out in the pen and see them with all these big calves on them. And I mean big stout calves weighing a ton already. And this, this was like an August, early September tour. Uh, it was just perfect. And I had two or three different state breeders come up to me and they said, aren't you afraid you're going to get your cows too big? And I looked at them kind of funny, and I said, why do you say that? Well, they're, they look like they're going to be pretty big cows. And, uh, and I, that, that really took me back because here I am. I had neighbors that were calling this bull new toad because they didn't think it was very big. He wasn't the extreme that all these other Angus cattle were at the time. And that was pretty hard on me. And I told my wife that night after that tour and everybody left, I said, this is just nuts. 
I said, here's a bull that I think is really has a special place in the industry. And my neighbors are calling him new toad, saying he's too little. And I said, other breeders have come in here and want to know if I'm going to get my cows too big. And they're daughters of the bull that everybody's saying is too little. <laughs> right. And, you know, this makes no sense. This is, this is, uh, it just nuts. And, uh, I, I had a real problem with that. And I told Barb, I said, we are going to have to find another way to do this thing, or I'm going to have to find another way to make a living because I don't know how much of this uh, insanity that I can take. I'm already kind of, you know, I, I'm already at a very high level, I think, and more than I can almost stand. And so uh, that was the story behind making a shift. And I decided that our next bull sale that following spring, we were going to have a little questionnaire that we could put out before our customers that were at the sale. And there was about five questions on a little slip of paper. And I only remember one of them. And it was, do you retain any part of your calf crop through the feedlot phase of the industry? Yes or no. And believe it or not, even then, this would have been about 1986, 85. Believe it or not, about 33% answered yes. Now, keep in mind, we're living in the Platte River Valley. There's lots of crops. There's a lot of farmer feeder types, uh, not necessarily large feedlots like there would be today, not very far away, but big enough that they were serious. It was their only business. They were feeding cattle. And so uh, it just made sense to me that eventually there were some articles were already in, in uh, beef magazines, trade magazines about retained ownership and retaining ownership. Uh, also the possibility of grid marketing. There were absolutely zero grids out available for anybody to use. Most of the major feeders of the day and most of the packers uh, didn't want any part of grid marketing at that point in time yet. But it made sense to me that that was doable and possible. And that was the major paradigm shift for us in our operation right then and there. Because we decided that we were going to do structured serve evaluation for carcass merit based on BIF standards and American Angus Association. And we just did the first bull in 1986 in that effort, and that was AAR Nutrek. And that data come back extremely promising and very, very good. And then Nutrin, uh, I had asked Clarence Van Dyke if he'd want to partner with me on that bull when he sold it to Nile. And he just said in his slow, dry, brilliant way, oh, Bill, he said, you know, our program, he said, we just use proven sires. And he said, he's a long way from proven yet. And I just chuckled. I said, I know Clarence, but I said, I thought I'd ask. I said, It'd be a great, I think he's going to be a great breeding bull. And it turned out he was. And it turned out that Clarence used him back in the program, AI. And it turned out that he sired a bull called VDAR. New Trend 315. It's a bull that I was managing their sale at the time, and Sidon Stricker in Missouri ended up buying that bull for 73000 at their sale as a yearling. Uh, and then I used a little of 315, 
And I'll be honest, his, his females were really quite good, but I didn't think he had the power behind him as daddy did. But I, I did manage to raise a bull in 1990. The calf was born at our place, and his name was our prefix, B slash R, New Design 036, who is a bull that's known throughout several continents today by his number, 036, which is a rarity for any bull in any breed. But he became the foundation. He was the first behind every bull in the Angus breed today that carries the new design name, all go back to 036. And uh, he laid the foundation for the carcass effort in our operation that was incredible. And when when it finally became the end thing or the popular thing to have some marbling in your cattle and some carcass merit, it pretty much points back to that herd of cattle that we developed right there at North Platte, Nebraska. Yeah, and that would have been obviously fueled by certified Angus beef, which, uh, you know, you'd have been involved in then. And, and um, gosh, I remember managing sales myself, uh, bull sales for for Virginia Cattlemen's and some of that back in the 90s. And it just seemed like every pedigree I typed into a sale book had <laughs> BR New Design 036 in it somewhere. And so uh, so I'm very familiar with <laughs> with that yeah. with that name yeah. and, and the legacy of that bull for sure. Well, and it was it was fascinating, Jim, because uh, I can't tell you how many people I'd run into and uh, they say, oh, you're the guy. Yeah, you're the guy that's that carcass guy, uh, you know, chasing all that marbling. And I said, well, I said, I don't mind being called a carcass guy. I said, I believe it's extremely important. And I think it's high time that this industry hooked up with our consuming public. Uh, I really believed in that for, from that day forward that. Uh, there was no way you push this product called beef through the supply chain. You got to pull it through the supply chain. And it's, it, if not, it's, you can't push a rope or a chain uphill, but you can, you can pull it anywhere you want if, if you're pulling. But you can, there's lots of places you can't push it, and the beef supply chain is just like that. And uh, the only way that you're going to pull it through a supply chain is that people, want to spend their hard-earned money for a product that costs more in the in the protein field. And your competitor is still chicken and pork, primarily chicken. And even as plant-based burgers came along, plant-based proteins, to try to supplant beef, that hasn't worked very well either. And I'm not going to try to say it never will, because with the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, before we started here, we're talking about genomics and it's everywhere. When you talk to these kids in places that you go, uh, that is very true. And with genomics and how they will design some of these other protein products with a genomic input to it, that brings a lot of the same genetic makeup that's actually in our product. Um, it's hard to tell where that will end up yet. I'm not counting that one out by any means, but it is really, really hard for me to believe that all these people who don't want anything like GMOs 
genetically modified products that will sit back and say this is okay. I, I'm I'm not sure that's going to happen either because they are so radical. I don't think they care. Yeah, I felt the same way. I'm like, uh, they 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 they're asking for a healthier product, but you glue it together with a bunch of different chemicals and everything else, and feed it to them just because it's not a just because it's not an animal and they'll eat it. And it it, it that always baffled me as well. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see the end of that story at some point in time. But right now, it's right now we're still winning, so that's good, and in a pretty big way too. Uh, it's 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 hard to duplicate it, and the truth is, there's there's really no product out there that's more natural than meat when you get right down. Well, we I had to, had the opportunity to have uh, Dr. Larry Cora on one of the podcasts, and and we visited, you know, and and uh, you know, and it's just still fascinating that uh, you know, as you know, the, the skeptics would always say, well, you'll saturate that that prime market, you'll saturate that high choice market, but but the demand for beef has went up, and the and the the amount of prime is 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 still going up, and. And there just doesn't seem to be a saturation point. It just seems like the more prime we make, the more people want to want to eat it, you know. And so, uh, so that's a fascinating point. And I don't know, I, you know, I don't know what point that saturation will happen, but we sure aren't. We sure haven't hit it yet. Right, I agree. And all you have to do is kind of look at what Wagyu's doing with some of their product and and the price of it on a menu and. And there's still people willing to sit down and pull out their wallet, and dig pretty deep, you know, and do that. Um, and I've never tried that product, but uh, I may at some point. It's, for me, an upper two-thirds choice for USDA grading system and prime is more than enough marbling for me to be happy with a, with a good steak. Yeah, I, I've, I've tried a few of it, and I just keep going back to prime and I think it's, you know, it's just hard to beat, like you said. So, so, so after BR New Design 036 and, and, you know, that, that new trend 036, I mean, thing is that that's getting pretty hot for you right now as a breeder. And, uh, I mean, tell us what kind of that's like. I mean, what, you know, having, having some of the hottest bulls in the, in the breed and, and I mean, you, you have to, you know, you have to be feeling pretty good about your direction and stuff at that point. And I mean, what's that, what's that like to have those kind of bulls and, and experience that? Well, it's pretty special to say the least. And being, being a person who finally realized that we were kind of on the right track, but for me, it was still about getting enough information so that I'm convinced that we're doing the right thing and we're spending our money in the right way. And so I, I was aware in the industry that at Oklahoma State University, a uh, guy by the name of Dr. Glenn Dolezal was in meat science at Okie State, and that he and, and some of his mates there at the university had developed what they called a box beef calculator. And that project was such that it would take all the inputs from a single market animal, for example, a fat steer, and uh, 
take all the input information and plug it into this calculator, and it would tell you what that animal was valued at. And I get this goofy offline idea one day about, I wonder if there's any way to take this information and data that we've gathered from the American Angus Association on all this structured evaluation, could we take this information and plug it into that box beef calculator in some way with the people who know how to do those things and put a value on a sire's progeny to compare sires? Now, rank the sires again, like my old deal that I did my master's on, you know, but rank these sires on the basis of their progeny value. I called Glenn and I ran this by him and he said, wow. He said nobody's ever asked us that question before, but at that time, his wife was Sally Dolezal, who later took her maiden name back when they split, Sally Northcott. And uh, she was at Okie State, and she had the ability and the knowledge to run that data and information. So Glenn said, I'll talk to Sally and see what we can come up with. And he called me back and he said, we'd like to try this. So I sent him that information on about 16 sires. And they ran it through that deal. And when he called back one day, he said, I think you're going to like what, what we did here. And he ranked all those cattle. And there was, uh, there was uh, in those 16 sires, we used a par value to compare these, these progeny by it, these car this carcass information. And that par value was like, in those days, was a 750-pound carcass. Uh, just choice, uh, no bells and whistles, no discounts, but a choice 750-pound carcass with, uh, like I said, choice grade and yield grade three. And that was, the, that was the par value across the board. What was fascinating was is I didn't, I realized after we did this work, I wasn't even smart enough to know which bulls we should have been testing to start with. And when you started thinking about that, all but one of those sires ended up above that par value for their progeny value. One of them ended up below it. So we were doing something right just by chance or by uh, phenotypes, by the information, what we knew behind them, you know, pedigree-wise and what have you. But keep in mind, we're doing a lot of this, and we didn't even have EPDs on these cattle yet. Uh, but what was fascinating was not only how those sires came out of that thing, it was, it was how they actually ranked. And then there ended up being, and people today know there's enough difference in variation in carcass value that will not, they will not think this number I'm going to give you is very, very big, but I can tell you it was gigantic then. This was like early nineties, you know, mid nineties. And uh, the, the value difference from the top sire to the bottom sire of those 16 sires on their progeny merit was a difference of about 117 bucks a head. That was, to me, that was a home run in that point in time because nobody had ever done this before. And I thought, Man, we're on the right track, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. This, this, this is the real deal. 
And there was even an article written in Beef Today about it way back when. I've still got a copy of that laying around the house. And uh, it, it, uh, a guy by the name of Wes Ishmael, who you would know, has been a great writer for our industry. He did a story on it at that time. And it was well done and really showed people how much value there was in this kind of effort. It's, it's, it's for, for the, the move that took place afterwards and to get to the carcass merit and the change in the, you know, the, the average grade of the harvest across the United States. That's now probably the greatest paradigm shift in the history of our industry by far. It's probably out, went beyond boxed beef, but it would have never got to where it was if it wasn't for all these other things that took place. And so they all they all kind of fit together when you start thinking about it. They all kind of head us in the same direction, which is about more value and what we do and getting compensated for the hard work and the effort to do it and to lead the industry to a better place. Yeah, I think uh, one of the statistics, and I won't get the numbers exactly right, Bill, but uh, that Larry had quoted, you know, early on in that certified Angus beef thing, they were, they were, they were like, wow, if we can get like a 17, 18% acceptance, we'll be, we'll be really doing well. And, and I think that's up to pushing 30 or more now acceptance yep. rate in, in that, uh, and certified Angus beef. And you'd have been, you'd have been, you know, one of the founding contributors to, to proving that that could happen and, and, um, and demonstrating it and, and have the cattle that, that you know is, is causing that today, right? Right, right. And so, yeah. So yeah. after after uh, after O thirty six and and you proving this, I mean, what kind of what was the next step? I think there was probably some some offspring that were still pretty popular, and and uh, you know, kind of take us through that that uh, life after O thirty six, or life uh, shortly after O thirty six, and and uh, some of the successes after that. Yeah, the in in uh, 036 was born in 1990, and just three years later, we had a son of 036 that was uh, um, New Design 323 was his number, and uh, then as time went along, uh, in uh, one of the highest dollar bulls that we sold early on was a bull that was born in, in uh, 1995. And uh, he was sired by a high marbling bull that I experimented with. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say his name at all, but the truth was he, he did put marbling in the cattle, but he was one of those early on. There was issues with a lot of people in accepting the, the marbling thing and the carcass cattle because they said they were too frail, not enough muscle. And a lot of those things they said was absolutely true. But it did not mean that you couldn't do both. And that's where they got it wrong. This bull, I, it didn't take me long to quit him because it wasn't any, he wasn't anywhere close to what I wanted these cattle to look like and what I wanted them to perform like. So a lot of the early high, high uh, marbling cattle were like that. And you had to realize that, uh, you know, marbling and ribeye were very, very 
uh, antagonistic. And that's the nature of genetics. And the key to it, and we realized early on looking at the cattle, you have to you have to make, you know, the old judging team thing, Jim, as you know, extremely important to success in our business because you have to make great observations and draw the right conclusions and then do something about it positive to get to where you want to go. And the bottom line is that the antagonism between marbling and muscle, I think, is the greatest lesson that you could talk to some of these young people about today because we now know that you can find bulls, sires, that defy a lot of genetic antagonisms. That became our mission, was to breed cattle that defy genetic antagonisms and reproduce them. And I think that was the mission we were on, and I think we came close to getting that accomplished. Yeah, I, I tell people I think that's what makes a, uh, you know, makes a cattle breeder, right? Is yeah. to be able to take the things that aren't supposed to happen and and yeah. you know try to breed them so they can happen and and uh, those t- antagonistic traits you know muscle and marbling birth weight yeah. and growth I mean there's so many of those things that um, that we've been able to 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 change in these cattle because uh, breeders like you were able to do it and I and I think that uh, the great the great lesson is that the uh, um, when you you figure out those antagonisms, you make the moves to try to correct them. Uh, you realize too, and and I, I I'm just taking in my journey, where what what I feel like I realized was that these traits are in many ways are based on hormones in these cattle, and I'm a firm believer that hormones. The understanding of how they work, both in in males and females, is absolutely essential to being a good cattle breeder. Uh, Example being is, there's no question in my mind that ribeye and muscle is a male hormone-driven trait. And I believe marbling is a highly maternal hormone-driven trait. Hmm. I believe that very strongly. And... It's interesting because, particularly in females, if you start getting females with a very cylindrical tubular body type to them, you're just going to put kind of put yourself out of the cattle business because those cattle are not really. I'm not going to say they're not efficient. I think they can be efficient, but they have to be next to a feed bunk. But if they're going to be cattle that utilize grass and roughage and forage in the right way. Uh, as a female, they've got to have tremendous internal capacity, internal dimension, and lots of rib cage to them. And the real value of that starts up front. Uh, you know, in 4-H and through college and judging teams, it was always about how thick they are behind, how, how powerful they are through the center of that quarter. A long time ago, I got over that, and I started looking at chest floors in these beasts. And I believe that today, Jim, the chest floor is the engine that drives these cattle. And I'm talking about reproduction. I'm talking about feed conversion. And I'm talking about carcass merit. Because if they have a big chest floor, and a lot of people say, well, you can't do that. 
because you'll create too many calving problems with those shoulders and front ends. And I totally disagree with that because if that shoulder is on a 45 degree angle from the top of the shoulder to the point of the shoulder, they not only will have a correct hock and put their hind foot in the track that the front foot leaves, but at the end of the day, they're going to do all these other things right. That chest floor will just be a wider spring of rib behind that elbow and, and that heart girth, and they'll have more spring of rib in there. They'll be, they'll be wider through that all that thoracic cavity and everything else, and when you get to that ribeye, it's bigger. And if you have a female, it's kind of a longer muscle with uh, the right, what I call body cavity shape in them. Uh, you put those things together and she has a skeleton then that stretches that muscle over a bigger area. That female will actually put bigger ribeyes in her offspring because she's got a bigger chest floor in. So I, I've, my whole life now in recent years is about sorting cattle by up front, not so much from behind, because it's another one of those forms that, that creates the right functions for what we want these cattle to do for us. That's interesting. I had an older gentleman tell me one time, he said, uh, the other thing is, he said, these cattle don't have to grow and develop uh, looking exactly like they do at birth. He said, if you don't believe that, he said, look at a buffalo. <laughs> and he said, yeah. you know, they can, yeah. if they if they look like at birth what they do when they're mature, <laughs> they would never make it out of a cow. So Well, that's, that's so true, you know, they're, a lot of those mature too early and they're done. Uh, if they look too good at a young age, they really do have to kind of grow into it. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by BRC Brahmins. BRC has created their own legacy by taking their time-tested bloodlines, breed-leading performance, and classic style into uncharted territories of genomic excellence and premium marbling. Arriving as the unmistakable leader of destination in the modern American Brahmin. For more information and their upcoming events, visit brcutrer.com. That's B-R-C-U-T-R-E-R.com. So let's get back on uh, 036. And then there was another bull. Was there another bull after that? Did you breed the, uh, the 878 bull as well or? No, the 878 bull and 1407 were sons of 036, but they were okay. bond bred bulls. That's right. That's right. Yep. I remember the new design. I remember that. So, But I will share with you that in, in, uh, in 1999, we bred a bull called, uh, his number was 928, Destination. The year before that, two years before that, 1977, we produced a bull that we named B slash R Destination 727. And uh, he topped our sale that following year as a yearling bull and really was a tremendous breeding bull. And if I pulled his numbers up today yet, he would be pretty amazing how good some of those numbers are. And how these cattle have hung through all these next 20 years or so of, uh, of supposedly improved breeding and what have you. But some of the numbers that hung in these cattle uh, as they got out in the population just got better. 
And now in this day and age, they're still hanging in there and they still have traits that will be almost breed leaders. So 727 ended up siring in his first calf crop out of a full sister to the 323 bull, the bull called B slash R destination. And I would put 727, his sire, and then his tattoo, 928. 928 is the bull that got the ABS stud, and the same outfit in Nebraska that bought an interest in 036 when he sold in our sale was the Mawson brothers there between North Platte and Hershey, Nebraska. And they also, Barry bought into the 928 bull as well when he came along. And that's a commercial herd, and he and his son now run about a thousand commercial cows. And they will ship cattle and have it took it carried those guys through the 1980s because they were selling these cattle on a grid and getting so much more out of their fat cattle that they fed themselves that it's a great story. It sounds like uh, an opportunity for a follow-up podcast at some point in time. It, it could well be because he, he's, he's a kid that, uh, grew up with some dairy cows, and back was the Nixon era when they had the dairy cow buyout. They sold the dairy herd and invested in commercial beef cows. And today, run his herd of cattle. And in the in the 1980s, when interest rates were just eating everybody alive, these guys made it through and have continued about their business and just keep making them better. And when he when he sends several pot loads off it's 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 not unusual for him to have uh oh in the neighborhood of 50 55 primes in those cattle it's it's really really fantastic story so so um so kind of take us through um you know your, your your later part of your career and and what you were doing and then I'm assuming you you've retired at this point or or what's what's happening with Bill these days? I I tell people that no, I'm not. And they said, Well, you sold it. And I said, Yes. I said, I will admit to being tired, but I haven't put anything in front of it yet. <laughs> so the story is what I got to do it more of and uh enjoyed it immensely was industry things. Uh I've always wanted to not just breed a great set of cattle, but have an impact on the industry. And I think the cattle have. But I also got very involved in uh, in the 1990s, while a lot of this was going on that we talked about. Uh, I served two full terms on the board of directors of the American Angus Association. And while doing that, I was on the CAB board and one year actually chaired certified Angus beef. Uh, and I, when I first went on the board, Dick Spader was our CEO and I enjoyed that experience immensely with Dick. Um, he came to me one day and, uh, he said, what, what can we do more than what we're doing? And I said, well, first of all, I said, I think there ought to be a lot more directors from the board of the American Angus Association at NCBA and these national events, I said, if, if, if the Ang Association really wants to be the leader that you say that we, we want to become, 
uh, I think it has to be industry-wide and not just concentrated on one breed of cattle. And as, as time has bore this out, there's no question our biggest issues are industry-wide issues for everybody. Uh, I went on after that to serve two full terms on the beef board. And this may be of interest to some of the listeners, but uh, the, the structure of the beef board back in those days, the early parts of the 2000s is what I'm talking about, um, was uh, the fact that we had a deal called uh, Research and Knowledge Group at NCBA. And in part of that, there were lots of other committees that were related to it. But one of them in particular was product enhancement. And the same Glenn Dolezal that I didn't know that well back in the 90s when we did that work with Oklahoma State and I were both on that committee at one time. And we both served as vice chair and chair of the product enhancement committee. And during that era, um, is when all the muscle profiling work took place, you know, paid with checkoff money. People say the checkoff isn't doing any good. Well, that's not true if they get their facts together because the, the uh, muscle profiling work added tremendous value to this carcass by fabricating the chuck down to this flat iron, petite tender, Sierra cut, Denver cut, and all these value-added products. One of the reasons why we still import, you know, ground beef, and that's primarily what our imports are today, and a lot of people are condemning the fact that we import beef, that we raise enough here. Well, they don't understand the marketplace. Because in the marketplace, we need the ground beef that's leaner because of these high-quality, fatter cattle that we're raising. And we raise the best high-quality cattle in the world anywhere and it's not even close it's because of genetics it's because of our expertise at feeding these cattle and rations nutrition all the above yep everybody wants some don't they yes and so uh uh i served those terms on that and while we were you know taking leadership positions in like this product enhancement group that muscle profiling work, uh, the big Chris Calkins at the University of Nebraska, or, or at, at uh, yeah, the University of Nebraska in the meat science department was one of the leads on the muscle profiling work, along with Dwayne Johnson. I don't know if he's related to you or not, but he's at the <laughs> University of Florida, Dr. Dwayne Johnson. But those two guys were the, the, the meat science brain trust behind a lot of that muscle profiling work, along with the folks at USDA Mark at Clay Center, Nebraska. Uh, that was a tremendous effort for our industry and value that it added. And a lot of people argue, well, the value, ne value never gets back to the cow-calf people. And my only answer to that is, I can't argue with that. I can't tell you the value's gotten back like I'd like it to. But I can tell you, if we hadn't had those improvements to create demand and beef and pull this carcass through the system that we talked about earlier, I would hate to be in that situation today without those improvements of, uh, of that were made with, with those efforts. Just incredible efforts by a lot of people. Uh, since then, more recently, and I'll move up closer to current days today, 
I was asked in 2015 to be one of the 15 people on the Long Range Planning Task Force for, for the cattle industry at NCBA. And I served on that in 2015 and got an invite to come back in 2020 and serve on it again. So the last two long range plans, I've been on those two 15 member task force working on that. And they're two of the greatest experiences I've had in my lifetime in the cattle industry. I'm so fortunate I've been able to do that because uh, I've enjoyed the daylights out of it. And I think we've impacted the industry in a very, very big way with those, those two groups. Lots of people that have become longtime friends because of that. And uh, same mission is to improve the industry as a whole. And we keep going forward here and you kind of look at the future and what's that hold? It's, you know, the environmental issues are becoming a major, major headwind for our industry. And a lot of it is people who are talking about this, who should stick to their own area of expertise. I mean, the Bill Gates is the world. I wouldn't begin to try and tell him how to build a computer or anything else. And I think he ought to stay the hell out of our business in terms of what methane is and, and emissions, because <clears throat> the information that he shares is wrong. And it's not even current. It doesn't represent our industry in a way that it should. And I, I think all of us should be concerned about that. And now the most the newest thing, the newest front, is a deal called ESG. I had never heard of it before a couple of months ago. And I got asked by Dr. Russell Cross at Texas A&M, who works and very involved with the Houston Livestock Show on their International Livestock Congress that they hold every year. And they're having a program based on that this year to try to... Uh, put a stop to some of this effort that's being pressure being placed on U.S. corporations. Um, the E is for environmental, the S is for social, and the G is for governance. And this is a deal that's coming out of a lot of our very left-wing influenced, very liberal institutions, college institutions across the country, and particularly those that have law for, law schools associated with them, such as Harvard, but they're proud of the fact that they have developed this to a point to where it's influenced a tremendous amount of capital in this country as to how it's invested. And they're putting pressure on these corporations to influence their, their leadership, as in their CEOs and their boards of directors. And if they don't do what these people pushing this envelope think is appropriate for the environment and for the, the green, so-called, quote, green movement, alternative energies and what have you. If they don't do that, they're going to do their best to influence a lot of these companies like Black Rocks of the world that invest these dollars. And if they feel they're not doing the right thing for the environment, uh, they're going to encourage investors to take their money somewhere else. So how's that? How's it work, Bill? I mean, environmental social governance. Um, how does that? How does? You know, what exactly does that mean? I guess for guys just now hearing it. Yeah, it's uh, well from the environment. You know, it's 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 about now. It's about EVs, electrical vehicles, uh, which are not the problem, by the way. 
if you really want to get to the heart of it, the real problem behind the electrical vehicle movement, um, the problem is the batteries and and the the uh, minerals like lithium ion batteries, cobalt that's in the cathodes of these batteries. These are the issues that are really the problem because they're being mined in ways in the world that are far dirtier than anything we're doing in agriculture. It's not even close. So that's the environment. The social part is they want to dictate all these equality movements, and a lot of these are not necessarily a bad thing, need a lot more women involved in a lot more things that are going on today. They're still not anywhere close to being in any way equal in terms of salary or position or many other things in a lot of industry. It's the one thing agriculture is way ahead of everybody there, too. I mean, women have always been a major part of agriculture. One year in Nebraska, since we've moved to Nebraska, there was one year where both candidates for governor of Nebraska were women. I don't know if that's ever happened anywhere else in the world, but, you know, in, in our cattle business, the women on these ranches across the state of Nebraska, they're equal to everything. And I think that's true throughout agriculture. And so the governance part of it is is it's <clears throat> it's governed or I, I looked at it. I wondered if it was a social type governance. So it's a social pressure, uh, you know, to to, you know, to govern in a, in a way that um, is really more of a social emotional type type basis rather than a science basis. So I was wondering if that's what I it think, meant or I if it's something you're, else. You're very astute to bring that up because my take on their governance is that these people firmly believe in uh, socialism. And I would go so far as to call it almost fascist in wanting to control. Um, if a person wants a little more information on this, you can actually Google a lot by Googling uh, ESG Harvard Law School. They held a forum on this uh, way back about, I, I want to say, I think it was about 1985. This is how long they've been, you know, conjuring up this deal and working on it. And they've got a they've got a pretty good head start. But uh, if if we want to do the right things, we all ought to have to be engaged right now in trying to figure out how we slow it down, how we you know, change the direction of this. I don't think there's a whole lot of good will come out of this thing at all. And these are the same people behind this. I use an example. I, I was asked and I accepted after I realized what it was about, but I am talking on uh, March 1st at this International Livestock Congress in Houston, and I'm going to present a deal on it. And what I compare these people to that are pushing this thing are the same people, not by DNA or not by name, but by uh, philosophical environmentalism or whatever you want to call it. They're the same people who many years ago got the, the bird called a spotted owl in the northwest part of the United States put on an endangered species list and ended up putting lots of families in Northern California, Oregon, and Washington out of business who were involved in the timber industry. And uh, it, it was extremely difficult times for a lot of those people. 
Same thing happened in the San Joaquin Valley and the Central Valleys of California when it came to the California River smelt, they call it. This little, little salmon fish, you know, a smelt. A tremendous amount of that very rich, productive farm ground in California out of production by pulling the water away from those countries that needed it to survive, to save this smell. But the spotted owl, and here's the interesting thing, that goes back to about 1985 as well. And when it became an endangered species, they, they gained that status through a lawsuit. And that's where a lot of these liberal colleges with these law schools are very, very liberal based. And uh, there's a lot, lot of liberalism, uh, socialism behind that. So it, it all comes together in these things. And as a result, they, they found out afterwards on surveying how many spotted owls were in this area. You know, how you go about that is questionable and how accurate that information is to start with. But as it played out, Mother Nature had a different plan. They were worried that timbering and fires were the main reason for the reduction of this spotted owl population. It turned out that years later now, they've decided that it wasn't that at all. It was another species of owl called the barred owl. And that barred owl was a bigger species, very aggressive, that actually consumed not only the same food that the spotted owl consumed, but more of it. And they moved in and were kicking the spotted owl out of that, out of their, uh, yeah, their habitat. Yeah. Habitat. Habitat's the word I was looking for. Thanks. Uh, and this is very true. So what's our government do? I don't know how many people would even know this because the government's not going to talk about it, but fish and wildlife came into this deal and decides, hey, we ought to, uh, we ought to do something about this barred owl. So they decided they're going to start shooting these barred owls. And the, the last information that I found on it was on their last calculated effort to determine how many of these barred owls they were able to eliminate with this project was about 3,100 of them over, I don't know how many years this was, but about 580,000 acres of native timber. That would be these ponderosas and Douglas fir and what have you, but these old, old forests, you know, where these habitats are. And I don't know if anybody's counting the ammunition or not. I don't know how good these guys are, but uh, the, the bottom line is nobody's, nobody's complaining about shooting a barred owl. Nobody's complaining at all. And, and yet they're the same people, you know, that sued to start with to get this spotted owl listed on endangered species. You know, I, I've become a huge fan of Forrest Gump. Because <laughs> the more I get involved in some of these things, the more I realize that he had it right all along. He's, my mama always said, stupid is and stupid does. <laughs> <laughs> and so, oh, that's so that's, good. that's what I've been involved in in these later years. And, uh, the moral of the story and and you know i first time I'd, i've heard the term esg but i think as as producers and cattle people i mean 
just like you, I mean, get involved, get educated, right? And uh, and learn more about it, and and find out you know what your opinion is, and 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 where it is, and be informed uh, about those decisions. And I think that's probably you know that 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 whole discussion is is really is our job as as cattle producers is to is to inform ourselves and and be informed so we can when confronted we can we can speak it um intellectually about it and and uh, and be educated about it and so i think that's that for me that's probably the moral of the of the discussion we had and and uh you know because there's always going to be things like that that confront us isn't there Always, always so, always so. And the more we go forward, the more I'm convinced there'll be more issues just like it. Uh, and so we we need to be alert. Uh, I think Reagan said it best, trust and verify. And you can apply that to just about everything we do in, in the industry. And it is our job. And it's I'm very, very positive about the future of agriculture and the future of the cattle business. I think we're in a tremendous position doing the right things. And I think we've done so many things well to reduce emissions and will continue to. I, I know of projects going on right now at uh, even the University of Nebraska and other places like it that are doing everything they can do to position the beef industry in a positive way when it comes to these emissions. And the work that's being done at in California, uh, the guy the guy that's quoted quite a bit, who is an environmental scientist that's in the Department of Animal Science at uh, UC Davis, I believe it is. And I'm having trouble saying his last name right now, but he would be a great person to address this. Because he talks about the fact that methane, which is a very dangerous gas, in some ways more dangerous than carbon dioxide, but carbon dioxide remains in the environment for a very, very long time. And methane actually has like a 10-year lifespan and breaks down into a carbon dioxide type. He calls it an oxycarbon cycle of some kind. Uh, I can't begin to describe that, but the fact is, when, once that becomes a carbon dioxide, it becomes sequestered in grasslands, trees, plants, you name it. Plants do not grow well, crops do not grow well without carbon dioxide. And so it's an important part of this whole deal, even though it stays out there in the in the environment for a, a very long time. Uh, it has value. And so uh, there's, to me, I just think that uh, we, we have a lot of good things that we can talk about because the cow does all this naturally as a ruminant. Uh, she, may, she may and will put some of this methane out in the environment when she's out there making a living and doing what she does. Uh, finally, I think most of them got right where, where that methane, which end of the cow it comes out of, but that's been quite an education for some of these radical extremists. Uh, took them a long time to get that close to right. And so as we go forward here, I am very, very confident we'll do the right things and this industry will be better for it. Yeah. Well, 
We appreciate uh, the hard work you're putting into that and, and representing, uh, you know, us, us cattlemen, uh, you know, in on committees and boards and, and that type of thing. It takes guys like you to, to be involved and to, to bring that grassroots voice uh, in those in those arenas. So so, Bill, as we as we kind of wrap up, I mean, um, tell us uh, what else you're doing in your in your spare time. What uh, give us sort of. Uh, uh, the highlights of the the ranch transition and where they can they can still find Angus cattle with the with at least some racial um, influence and and um, you know kind of what you're what you're doing with uh, with your life and 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 fun and stuff like that these days. Well, I have to tell you, uh, we were very very fortunate. I did not want to disperse that cow herd. Uh, I was convinced then, I'm more convinced today that it's quite unique within the breed and within the industry. And uh, that was going to be a difficult process and a difficult day if we had ever taken that step. Extremely difficult. I can't tell you how tough that might have been. But uh, we were lucky enough to find Trey and Dana Wasserberger. Uh, Trey's background was a commercial cow-calf deal in Wyoming, wasn't room for him to go back home. Uh, his wife, Dana's family is from between North Platte and Hershey, Nebraska. The Olson family, they have about a 40,000 head feedlot and run some commercial cows from time to time. Uh, but uh, it was very, very interesting. Uh, as we made this transition, there were a lot of people that would say, well, how's that going to work? They don't know anything about the purebred Angus cattle business. And don't take this the wrong way, but my answer to that was, thank God. Uh, I thought it was absolutely a plus that they did not come in with preconceived ideas about what was right or wrong about the purebred cattle business or strains of cattle within the breed, anything like that. And you know, being from commercial cattle background and a feedlot background, uh, and Trey had worked at buying commercial heifers and AIing them and selling them out as bred heifers in a neatly calving package. And so um, it was just perfect in my, in my mind that they knew who their customers were for the bulls that we were trying to produce in that program. And now they're doing it and they're carrying on the version and the mission statement and everything that we believed in. And they get it. They get it extremely well. So that's uh, that's the beauty of that transaction. And uh, I have never in my lifetime been around somebody of their age, early 30s, that that has the ability to have understood what we were trying to do and figured it out in such a short period of time and can actually analyze these cattle quite well. And most importantly, understand that it's a total package today. There's so much more to be considered than there used to be when, when I was getting started as to how you make your decisions and how you come up with that. The most important thing is that it goes back to observation, all those old judging team traits. Uh, they just keep showing up, and they will for anybody that wants to be successful and is going forward. 
I don't think it ever matters how much more technology, how much more science we get. I think it's still the ability to observe how these cattle function and work and put the pieces of the puzzle together in the right way. So they all fit and do what they're supposed to do. And uh, they, they, I assume, still have a, a website where can you find um, information on, on what they're doing in the ranch still? Well, they uh, adopted some of the things we were doing. I had a B slash R, and that could have been for my name or Barb's name, either one, but that was our prefix. Uh, they're Trey and Dana, so they do a T slash D, uh, Angus. The other thing we did was we thought it was important this transition, wanting it to work for them and us as well. We just gave them our brand. So the same hot brand that we used, they now use in the program. Uh, we wanted to create continuity and carry over. And I think we're accomplishing that. And I still help with some sire selection and some matings from time to time. I, I told Trey, I said I'd help anytime I could. I'll be back out there helping with the bull sale on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day this year. So uh, uh, that that's uh, it'll be that's a Friday. We used to have that sale on a Monday. They wanted to get a little earlier, and so they were able to move it up some, not a lot, but from what we used to do. And uh, I can just tell you that when it comes to breeding decisions. Uh, being involved in a feedlot and knowing what, how much value there is in like prime cattle over high choice cattle, even, which is amazing. I did not necessarily could not have predicted that I'd ever see a day when prime was so much more spread over high choice like it is today, but it's incredible. And it's a, it's a market signal that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. Well, Bill, I, uh, I appreciate your your time today. It's been uh, it's been educational. I learned a lot about you that I didn't know, and so uh, I appreciate that time. And if people want to run into you or or see you around, will you be at BIF meetings or anything like that? What's uh, what's kind of the future look like for Bill Rischel? You know, I, I I like to try and make those BIF meetings when I can. COVID kind of threw a wrench in a couple of those here. A couple of years ago, I did give that uh, talk to the Young Producers Symposium across Zoom call here a couple of years back and then went to the one in, in Iowa that was there at Des Moines. Uh, and that's now two or three years ago. And I'm not sure the next one might be in Canada. I might not make that. That's I think that's in Calgary, uh, but I'm not sure. But I, Barb and I both drove out to Salt Lake for the Angus Convention. Uh, we are currently spent a little time in Arizona. And last month, uh, at the beginning of February, I guess, I got on a plane here in Phoenix and flew to New Orleans just to be at NCBA again and, and be part of that. Uh, firm believer that uh, that's an organization that, that puts a lot of time and effort into making this industry better. Uh, there's a lot of people might try to say about all the things they do wrong, but that's a tremendous number of people trying to do a lot of things that I believe are right and good for the industry. And somebody has to do that lobbying work. 
at the end of the day, most of the people, and I was this way most of my life, I don't know how I figured out to be involved as much as I was involved in and still have an operation left at the end of the day, but somehow we made it through. And uh, I'm I'm just saying that time and time again, our our issues are those people in legislatures that do not understand our industry well enough, and it's more about an educational process than anything else, I believe, and so that they can understand that we're doing a lot of things the right way because it's the way to do it with Mother Nature and the things that are important in all these natural resources that everybody's wanting to save. We've been doing that forever. And the animal rights <laughs> issues that they want to discuss, I, I'd say the American farmers and ranchers are the original animal rights people. Animal welfare <clears throat> people is, is the better way to put it. Uh, if we don't do that right, and if we don't take care of our natural resources the way we have over the years, none of us would be in business today. Yeah, that's right. I um, Well, I think uh, both Angus and NCBA are going to be in Orlando next year, so maybe we'll catch you at one of those two. And if not love, both of them, I would them. love to uh, meet you personally, you know, and have that opportunity. So uh, hopefully that'll work. Well, that sounds good. Well, Bill, I really appreciate your time today, and and uh, look forward to seeing you down the road. And appreciate you being a guest on uh, on Brands and Barbwire. That was great to be with you, Jim. For our producer Carlos Cheraboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbedwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast is sponsored by JMAR Genetics. For semen on our newest herd sires, JMAR Jehovah 8M11 and JMAR Jubal 5P01, please contact Jim Johnson at 434-546-2341 or visit jmargenetics.com.